Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. We have a lot to go over in Jill Duggar's book, Counting the Cost. I know that's why everybody is here, uh, and I'm definitely excited to go into that book. But I wanted to cover a couple different things before diving into the main topic of today's show. I'm going to just cover three things. Uh, They are important, so I want you to just stay tuned. Try not to skip ahead if possible. I know some are eagerly awaiting some thoughts and takeaways from Jill's book, uh, but I want to move through these and cover a couple important topics beforehand. First and foremost, I did appear this week on episode 14 of the podcast miniseries, Surviving Bob Jones University, hosted by my friend Andrew Pledger. And uh, you can check out that episode anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So if you're listening to this, be sure to take a note to tune in to Surviving Bob Jones University and check out episode number 14 to hear yours truly on the show. We had a really good conversation with a lot of really interesting topics. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you a sneak peek right now, just about 60 seconds. You can get a flavor of the episode and kind of get a sense of the type of discussion that we had. I think it was really cool. And uh, I hope that people who listen find it helpful. I've just been horrified to hear stories where it sounds like the guy, nothing really happens to them. At mm-hmm. all. I mean, of course, there are some instances where it does, but I've just heard like the girl would lose all these, um, I guess you would say privileges or things that they had. Like they couldn't mm-hmm. be involved with things on campus anymore. They couldn't have leadership positions, but the guy still had all of his stuff he was doing. And maybe they were in counseling. I don't yeah. know, but it's well, just insane. The language that's used for perpetrators nine times out of 10 is he fell or he's fallen. Oh so, my god! And like, or oh, they say, oh, it was a mistake, and it's like yeah. abuse is not a mistake. That is something that is so annoying to me. It's like, oh, nobody's yeah. perfect. People make mistakes, and it's like, whoa, like abuse is really intentional. This is not just a slip up. Like, oops, it's, this is really, really serious. Yeah. Well, I I always say like, you don't fall into abuse. Like, you have to climb your way to a position to be able to abuse. And so, you know, but in the terminology in the Baptist world, when you're saying 
hey, so-and-so fell, the first reaction when you hear someone fell is you want to see what tripped them. And so when you're going, hey, this youth pastor fell, and then the church is also pointing to this teenage girl or this teenage guy or whoever the the victim is or or younger even in some of these stories, um, you know, when you start teaching this subconsciously that, oh, she's the one that tripped him up. She's the one that ruined his marriage. She's the one that took away his career and his ministry potential. She becomes the villain of the story and becomes the target for any attacks online from the pulpit or from the congregation. And I can't tell you, I mean, there's a large case just recently that I was talking to someone about, and they literally moved her to a different family member's house in a different state because she had gotten into this situation. And the guy who had actually committed the offenses was someone who was like, he ran into another ministry position, waited a little while, and then rolled right back into where he was. It it was a slap on the wrist for him. Next, I want to say I had a fantastic board meeting on Thursday with the team at Courage 365. I am a board member of this organization, and uh, we're working really hard to help equip survivors with tools and resources to help prevent abuse, but also to help them heal from abuse uh, first and foremost. And so uh, I'm really excited about some of the things that are coming up with Courage 365. One of the things that I'm most excited about is in October, we're going to be hosting the 30 Days of Courage. 30 Days of Courage is a powerful free online event that's happening October 1st through October 30th inside the Courage 365 Facebook group. And this year, we're taking it to the next level. I've seen the list of guests that are going to be appearing on the panels that we're going to be having. I've seen some of the stuff we're going to be doing for giveaways. It's going to be a really, really exciting event. That's courage365.org slash 30. That's courage365.org slash T-H-I-R-T-Y. You're really going to want to go ahead and check out Courage 365. It's going to be an amazing, uh, amazing event. And we're going to actually do our first ever game night with trivia at the end of the event with three different contestants. It's going to be an absolutely unforgettable experience. So I'm really excited about Courage 365 in general and the direction that the organization is going, some of the resources that are coming down the pike, uh, even beyond this event. And uh, I'm really proud to be on the board of this incredible, beautiful organization and getting to spend time uh, in the board meeting with other individuals was a really, uh, really great time. Um, I absolutely love serving on the board of this organization and I love the team uh, that I'm surrounded with. They mean the world to me. So uh, go check out courage365.org slash 30 and sign up for this free event. Uh, You're not going to want to miss it. And finally, and most importantly, before we get into today's episode, I want to address a breaking story that hits very close to home for me. For those of you who have been listening to the Preacher Boys podcast for a long time or have just followed my story, it is no surprise to you to find out that I grew up from the time I was born to the time I was 18 uh, attending Mountain Avenue Baptist Church and Calvary Christian School in Banning, California. My parents were on staff. I spent every waking moment of my life essentially on that campus seven days a week. And all of my best and worst memories in equal measure for those first 18 years of my life took place on that campus in Banning, California. Around the time I was in 11th grade, there was a uh, incident where a sex offender Uh, moved to our church, and I found out the identity of this person. I reported it. I can share that full story within 
the show notes of this episode so you can watch that. I don't want to detract from what I'm sharing right now. Uh, but essentially, me calling out this person led to uh, the dissolution of many of my relationships, if not all of my relationships within that organization. For the last 12 years, I have seen that situation mishandled, and it has caused a lot of fear and terror and concern for over a decade with me that there would be an incident that would happen at the school, that someone would be harmed, that there would be a um, situation of abuse. And as of this week, those fears were realized. And um, there's not enough information here to do a full episode on this topic. I'm going to share all the information that I have, which is not much. Um, it's a police statement. And as I find out more information, obviously, I will share that in future posts or, or future episodes, depending on what it is and what needs to be shared. The Benning Police Department issued the following statement. The case number is 232154, location Mountain Avenue Baptist Church, 1325 Mountain Avenue, Banning, California. The report is about lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14 or 15 years of age and touching a person intimately for sexual gratification. On September 12, 2023, at approximately 3.42 p.m., an employee from Mountain Avenue Baptist Church responded to the Banning Police Department and reported criminal acts against a child that occurred on the church property. Members of the Banning Police Department responded, along with detectives, and conducted an investigation that resulted in the arrest and booking of an adult faculty member. The suspect was later identified as 26-year-old Nicholas Coral, who was booked into the Larry Smith Correctional Facility for violations of the penal codes I mentioned at the top of the show, which were lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14 or 15 years of age and touching intimately for sexual gratification. The Banning Police Department is asking anyone who may have additional information in regards to this case to contact the Banning Police Department Detective Bureau at 951-922-3170. In addition to the statement that was released by the Banning Police Department, the following statement was also issued from Mountain Avenue Baptist Church to all parents and staff affiliated with the ministry. This message is from Pastor Sidlowski. It says, Dear school family, I want to inform you that we had an incident in our high school yesterday between a staff member, Nick Coral, and a high school student. He was removed from the campus immediately and has been terminated. We promptly reported the incident to police and is now under investigation. We are fully cooperating with the investigation and we will release more information as it is provided to us by law enforcement. I am praying for all of our students, staff, and families. Sincerely, Rich Zdlowski, pastor. This is obviously a case that is extremely heavy, and it has been an immense weight over the last several days. Uh, I'm heartbroken that this happened. I am extremely glad that this was reported to law enforcement and that law enforcement has taken this man into custody, and uh, he has been set at a million-dollar bail um, as of the time of this recording. And I'm glad is being taken seriously and being investigated thoroughly. And I hope that continues throughout the course of this process. And uh, I do appreciate that a statement was sent out to the families at the school. And I would encourage anybody, if you are affiliated, I know many of my listeners are people who may know me through the school many years ago. Um, I would encourage you, please contact law enforcement if you have any information regarding this specific case. But I wanted to share that specific story uh, with you here on the show. It's something that's been weighing heavy the last uh, several days, and uh, I hope that we see justice carried out very, very soon, and that this is not a process that's drug out for many, many years. Uh, but thank you so much for letting me share that update.
With that story shared, I'm going to go ahead and move us into today's breakdown of Jill Duggar's Counting the Cost. We'll get into that in just a minute. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to dive into Jill Duggar's book, Counting the Cost, with all of you. I know this has been a much-anticipated book and a much-anticipated breakdown of the book, and uh, really excited to go through it. As always, I'm not going to be staring right at you through the entire episode. I have quite a few notes, several pages of notes from the book that I am going to be going through. And again, this episode is no substitute for the book. Um, I think if anything, it's a, a good explainer as to why you should pick up a copy of the book. And for those who have read the book, I think it's a great time to uh, kind of connect as to what stood out to me. And I hope within the comments and through social media, you'll share what stood out about this specific book to you as well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, again, I'm not going through a necessarily numbered list. I just have a couple key takeaways from the book that really stood out to me, and uh, I'm excited to share those with you. Now, to cover the question that's going to come up right out of the gate, um, yes, I have reached out to Jill Duggar and to Derek Dillard for an interview. Uh, I reached out to the publishing company uh, and to them and received a response that they are currently not doing press, which seems to be the case. They don't seem to be doing any press in conjunction with the book at this time. Uh, They were very kind, though, to send me a copy um, of the book as well, uh, which I thought was very kind, uh, even though they could not do an interview. So yes, I have reached out. Yes, I would love to have them on the show at any point. uh, But yeah, I I knew my comments were going to... I've already gotten a couple comments asking, uh, hey, why don't you interview Jill? I would love to, um, but it's up to Jill uh, if she wants to be interviewed um, and do any press, which honestly, if I was her and I had just dropped a documentary uh, series uh, in Shiny Happy People and had written a what I can imagine was a painful memoir to write that puts you under fire from a lot of family and friends, uh, you've said your story pretty clearly. So uh, why do a ton of press uh, around the book? But anyway... Um, yeah, this book is absolutely wonderful. It is a little awkward to review memoirs uh, just because memoirs are deeply personal. Uh, a memoir exists for the benefit of the author first. I fully understand that. And I appreciate that even when a memoir does not work for me as a book, that it can be a valuable thing to the author. And I think it is a beautiful thing for someone to really think about their story, whether it's written solely for them and they never publish it, or whether it's something they do put out to the world bravely for people to read and critique. Um, I think memoirs, first and foremost, are for the author. So I'm never going to be extremely harsh uh, reviewing a memoir unless that memoir is specifically trying to, you know, just completely blatantly lie about something or something like that. But all that to say... um, This book clearly existed as an instrument for Jill Duggar to work through difficult and deeply personal topics uh, through the mode of writing. However, in addition to being probably a powerful tool in her own healing journey, it's an excellent book as well. It is harrowing, it's beautiful, it is sincere, and while it may contain emotionally raw moments, the book does not feel emotionally driven. This is a book that is filled with detailed, transparent accounts of what have happened, and it's refreshingly matter-of-fact. Uh, it dispels some tabloid rumors that have been spread throughout the years, 
And it also reveals that some were just the tip of the iceberg, that people really didn't know just how bad some of this was. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into the contents of this book, uh, first and foremost with why Jill wrote this. I think when you pick up any kind of book, like I mentioned, you need to understand the purpose of the book and why it was written within the first place. And lucky for us, we don't have to guess. Uh, Jill explicitly states why she wrote the book in the author's note at the end of the book itself. She said, quote, this book is not a letter to my family as part of the reconciliation process. I also didn't write this book to shame my family or just to get their attention. We will continue to work through matters with family independent of this book with the desired ultimate goal of healthy relationships, Lord willing. She continues later, and the degree to which we felt this book needed to be written was the degree to which we felt like voices were still being silenced and real harm was continuing to be done by not telling it. There is a very palpable sense throughout this book that this is Jill reclaiming her narrative, and we're going to keep circling back to that over and over again because I think it's important, and it's a theme that comes up in the book over and over again, is that uh, Jill's narrative was for a very long time not her own. And uh, she was part of a massive family, which, you know, that's one big hurdle. Uh, She is surrounded by religious pressure with IBLP, which we'll talk about later. And now she's, you know, for many years, well over a decade, she was plastered across television screens and printed in books to millions of people. And her individuality was really suppressed. That's felt throughout many of her, uh, you know, uh, anecdotes throughout the book. And it's really powerful seeing her kind of recapture her own narrative. So here's some of the takeaways from the book. Here's some things that kind of enhance the narrative we have of the Duggars and of Jill herself, of Jim, Bob, Josh. She names names in this book. She goes into detail. And uh, I'm going to break down some of the biggest takeaways uh, that I found within the book. One of the first things off the bat is, again, speaking of narrative, the appearances of the Duggar family. This is something that Jill touches on over and over again in the book is like what the world saw and what was actually happening behind closed doors. And she mentions on just page two, uh, this quote where she says her mother was smiling the same smile that the world has seen for years. It was full of pure innocence, but it protected like a shield. And it was a voice full of sweetness and joy, but she knows this voice well. And there's a lot of moments like that where she says, there's this thing people saw. There's this thing that I actually knew was behind it. And this idea of portraying yourself to be this perfect, sweet, kind person and then having all these layers underneath is something that is repeated and reiterated throughout the book and throughout Jill's story. And I think this is not a surprising, wow, we didn't know this, but it kind of was impressive to me that Jill so early on starts engaging with this and deconstructing the idea of who the Duggars were versus what was actually happening. And I don't think she's comes across as being bitter or angry because she very much like I tried to do when I'm sharing stories of my background, the good things don't invalidate the bad things. The bad things don't necessarily always invalidate the good things. They can shade how we see them, Uh, but there can be happy memories and not so happy memories. And I think she shares those uh, in a very fair kind of way. But she makes many references to the veneer of perfection that surrounded the family. Uh, In IBLP, they rose quickly in the ranks as what they called a model family. Uh, In the reality TV world, uh, Jim Bob started calling themselves a filming family. And the more that they gained popularity, it clearly further enhanced the need for the Duggars to maintain a specific image. 
particularly because not carrying through that image was going to affect them where it hurt the most, which was, of course, their wallets. And as you'll see, that's a driving force for much of what Jim Bob does throughout the series of this story. You know, Jill states things like, we knew the unwritten script we needed to follow, and I had to keep my reality far away from TV. There's just a lot of references here, and I think that's really important, and I think it's a really helpful part of the book. The next thing I think that really stood out was that the Duggars really weren't doing well financially before the documentary started rolling in. Again, finances are an integral part of this book from start to finish. I mean, the difference of the Duggar lifestyle before TV fame and post-TV fame It's extremely apparent, and Jill gives many examples, the first of which is when they were recording their first documentary for Discovery Health, and Jill talks about the family going on a grocery trip that they were documenting uh, at Aldi, and she shares this quote. She says, as we pushed our five shopping carts around Aldi, I heard a whisper that the crew was going to be paying for everything. So for the first time ever, mom wasn't directing us to buy our usual stocks of canned beans, ramen noodles, and 48 cent frozen beef and bean burritos. Instead, we were allowed to fill our carts with boxes of Lucky Charms, honeycomb cereals, ice cream sandwiches, frozen pizzas, and all beef chimichangas. Our carts were heavier than ever before, and all of us Duggar kids had the same double wide smile fixed on our faces. For once, the week ahead wasn't going to be filled with tater tot casserole or bean sandwiches. And she shares a lot of these stories where as these documentaries started rolling in and Jim Bob negotiated these different deals, they had help and crews coming in to build their the big house, as they call it, and that you saw on the Duggar TV series. They had help with groceries, trips. This became a business venture very quickly. And Jim Bob was negotiating uh, a lot of help for this growing family. And uh, to me, I think this is another important thing to notice too, because there's a lot of, I mean, lower class uh, Christian families. I knew many of them who were trying to pursue this quiverful lifestyle without a television budget. And they were just in horrible, horrible poverty. And so when you see the Duggars coming in and saying, you know, God will provide for us to have 19 kids, it's like, yeah, but not every family is going to have a TV show. Not every TV family is going to get royalties and episode payments and book deals. Um, And so, again, that veneer of what the Quiverful movement can look like or the IBLP lifestyle can look like was very slanted when you saw the Duggars portrayed a certain way on TV versus their real life situation up until they hit stardom. Um, Speaking of IBLP, one kind of quick throwaway anecdote that I think is really interesting is once regarding uh, Bill Gothard. Now, Bill Gothard is not as present in this book as he is in Ginger Duggar's book that came out recently. And I think that's because Ginger was a self-professed, it was a theological memoir. That's how she titled her book. Whereas Jill is very much just a memoir that happens to involve Gothard at certain points. So as his teaching is woven throughout, it's not similar in any way to how Ginger displayed Bill Gothard. And I'm not saying one's better or worse. I think they serve different functions. But Bill Gothard is more of a character within the book than he is a uh, a basis for a chapter, if that makes sense. Uh, but one notable section uh, I'll share with you involves her sister, Jana. And it kind of speaks to some of the things that have already been said about Bill, but it's coming from obviously a Duggar at this point, which is a higher profile name kind of calling this stuff out. And it says, we were invited to serve as leaders at Journey to Heart Camp, which was a great honor I hadn't expected at all. 
Even more surprising, though, was the fact that after the camp, my elder sister Jana was personally invited by Mr. Gothard to visit IBLP headquarters in Chicago and work there for a while. We were new to the inner workings of IBLP, they were becoming a quote-unquote model family, but we knew enough already to understand why it was only Jana who was invited. She was the only elder Duggar girl who was blonde, and everybody knew that Mr. Gothard liked blonde girls. We joke about it, calling Jana one of, quote, Gothard's girls. It didn't occur to me at all how strange, unsafe, and unwise this was. And if I had, I doubt I would have been able to speak out against it. It's a really bizarre kind of footnote, but it just again speaks to what a creep Gothard really was. And I like that Jill also includes many times throughout the book that there were times where she didn't notice something was bad because she wasn't taught to notice those things were bad. But she says, even if I did notice, I wouldn't even know what to say. And there's a quote in the book where she says that they weren't necessarily silenced in terms of they were allowed to ask their parents questions and talk about things. But there were kind of these subliminal messages about what could and couldn't really be talked about. Uh, One quote says, by preventing us from discussing anything controversial or sensitive with each other, the instruction not to, quote, stir up contention among the brethren, end quote, became a tool for silence for control, and for guilt. And so you see that woven throughout this uh, this book as well. And I think that was, a, again, an interesting footnote. The most truly bizarre yet harmless story in the book comes from when Jim Bob Duggar decided to run for office based on a coin toss. Now, apparently, this is a well-known story. I had never heard it before reading this book, but it's one of the weirdest anecdotes in the book. And it's one that's just purely gets to be funny without being downright creepy. Uh, Jill recalls that her dad told them he decided to run for the Republican nomination to the Senate. Uh, She was about 11 years old at the time. And he said, this is the excerpt from the book. He says, election in the United States Senate has never been something I have ever sought. It's not me that wants to run, he explained one day, but I really feel like God wants me to do this. I've prayed about it and have done something that I only do for the most important decisions ever. So how does Jim Bob make the most important decisions ever? Jill says, one of my siblings asked the question we were all thinking. What, Pops? Jim Bob, I flipped a coin three times, he said, his eyes growing wider and a smile of amazement forming on his mouth. And all three times it landed on heads. So I said, okay, God, you want me to run? So I will run. I don't even have commentary on this story, but this is a really bizarre one. And I wanted to include it in the notes. I had no idea where to put it, but uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, interesting anecdote within the book. On a less light note, uh, one of the things that gets a lot of coverage in the book is the Josh Duggar story. Now, I appreciate so much about this. There's so much to say. And again, uh, I really think anyone who's listening to this needs to read the book or listen to the book if you have not already, because I'm going to scratch just the surface of this, uh, the way that Jill unpacks the timeline from being a kid to now is really masterful, but particularly in the way she weaves in details about Josh's story. It is insane to me the way the Josh situation was handled. And we know a lot from coverage that we've seen on television and through news reporting and police statements and recordings at the car dealership where Josh worked. There's a lot of information that is available freely out there. But she gives some inside uh, information about it that is harrowing, to say the least. Um, She talks about finding out about uh, Josh Duggar. She talks about all of the past offenses and things that had happened. 
But when it came to the leak of her uh, private information from her childhood testimony against Josh when they were younger, when that leaked to uh, the tabloid magazines and all of a sudden she was kind of outed as a victim, uh, which is a terrible, terrible thing. But to read it in her words, it is a harrowing is the only word that comes to mind. It's it's a disturbing, disturbing thing to see. And I can't imagine the gut punch that situation must have been. But what's even more terrifying is that once that dropped, and I, and I want to mention too, Jill names by name everyone. I mean, from the city to the tabloid leadership to everybody who leaked this confidential information. She calls them out big time in this book by name. And I think that was extremely brave and I think very important to do uh, within this book. But after this story dropped, the paparazzi is swarming Jill's house. They're swarming the big house where the Duggars live. They're swarming Josh's house. They're going to Derek's work. These you know, parasitic paparazzi are coming in and camping outside the house and leaving fake packages. So she'll come outside and they can grab pictures. And so she mentions in the book that the family is all going to go to a family friend's house in a different area and use that kind of as a, a safe space, basically with a larger property, paparazzi can't come on and uh, more of a private location. And what's extremely disturbing is in the book, she says that they arrive at the big house, they go inside and everybody's there, including Josh. So she's spending time in this house with the person who did abuse her after a story came out. And what's disturbing about it is that Josh is kind of relaxed. He doesn't seem nervous about it. And he even starts laughing, uh, talking about how the paparazzi were, were swarming him. And it just shows how little remorse there was that instance. And, and Jill even talks about that, like the amount of remorse he showed for confessing to, you know, watching adult pornography as a kid was extreme remorse. And then as his crimes got worse and as, you know, the criminal side became more exposed, she says he showed less and less remorse up to the final charges of obviously child sexual abuse material, which he showed no remorse for whatsoever. And so she talks about him being there. And then she talks about her dad being distraught, not because their information was leaked, but because he was worried that TLC was pulling the plug on the show, which of course, obviously they did and then rebranded the show as Jill and Jess counting on, but they were pressured immensely to uh, go on and do the infamous Meg and Kelly interview. Jill was put into a position where really it was up to her to, as she puts it, defend her dad and her mom and let the show keep going on, even though she had no interest in doing that. And what's most disturbing about the Megyn Kelly interview is that Josh Duggar was present just off camera. So when you're watching the interview with Jill and Jessa, and they're sitting on the couch talking to Megyn Kelly, talking about this past traumatic event, their abuser is literally sitting off camera on a couch looking at them. She says on page 119, on that day with Megyn Kelly, we had taken our seats beneath the bright lights at the big house and did what we could to stand up for our parents. Answering all of Megan's questions, with Josh watching from a couch just out of shot, was like having a band-aid ripped off a deep and open wound. It was agony, so painful that I didn't really pause to ask why Josh was allowed to be there in the first place. I can't imagine 
again, why this situation happened. But then two, there's this immense amount of pressure on them in a moment of tragedy to do something that is purely to benefit the show continuing to go on, which at the time, Jill was making no money from. None of the kids were making any money from. Jim Bob was collecting the money from. And you see this pattern throughout the book of Jim Bob putting his kids in extremely high-pressure situations, specifically Jill, in high-pressure situations to maintain his lifestyle and his business he had built on the back of his 19 kids and his wife. And that goes to its extreme extent, obviously, with them having to do this Megyn Kelly interview with their abuser, sitting on a couch watching the entire thing unfold. But that's not the only time that Jim Bob put them into a high-pressure situation. Uh, One of the other disturbing elements of the book, and again, I'll give little details about it, but you need to read the entire book to get the full scope of this, was the contract. Now look, tabloids had reported for a long time about Derek and Jill being upset about how much they're getting paid, and you know, did they quit the show? Did TLC fire who? Like, There's been a lot of information. She breaks this down very clearly. She gives transcripts. She gives text messages. She recounts meetings that happened with uh, lawyers, with Jim Bob. Like the, The amount of gymnastics that Jim Bob did to not pay anyone but himself is pretty wild. Um, But here's kind of a snapshot of the contract. And to give context, by the way, um, this contract specifically that these kind of excerpts are from uh, come from a contract that Jill was asked to sign by Jim Bob the day before her wedding. Uh, And I might add, during a time where her husband Derek's mother was facing what looked like terminal cancer and She was exhausted, planning a wedding, going back and forth. And all of a sudden, the day before the wedding, Jim Bob slides over paper and says, hey, can you sign this really quick? She goes, okay, I trust my dad, sign this. Here's the contract with TLC that Jim Bob allegedly tricked Jill into signing. This is section three of the contract titled Compensation. It's stated that for each half hour episode of television, Mad Family Incorporated, Jim Bob's production company, would be paid $80,000. And for each one-hour episode, $65,000, with the numbers rising to uh, $58,000 and $73,000 if the show hit a fourth season. She explains, Pops later determined somehow that each child would receive 3% on their tax return each year. So he was lying to the IRS and telling him he was paying them, but it was a phantom payment. It was seemingly just reported on paper for tax purposes with no apparent intention to actually pay out this amount. She says we would later be told that this previously reported income was an investment or inheritance that we could only have access to upon my parents' death. It continues. We did the numbers. Over the years, there had been well over 300 shows for which we estimated that TLC had paid Mad Family Incorporated over $8 million total. Our wedding alone had netted well over $100,000 for Pops. And Israel's birth had been the focus of two special episodes, earning Pops another six-figure sum. Yet when we'd asked him to cover our $10,000 deductible and out-of-pocket expenses from the hospital stay, he pushed back. Over the years, Pops bought more and more properties, and his fleet of private aircraft contained multiple airplanes, including one with 10 seats. There was no denying he was a generous man who helped a ton of people, but it was also true he'd grown rich off the show. The more and more Jill and Derek pushed for this money to be received, the more and more pushback they got from Jim Bob, 
And then finally, they got a letter from Jim Bob that broke down all the different expenses that he had paid for Jill over the years, including a cell phone bill, apartment rent, uh, car insurance, vehicle fuel, eating at home three uh, three times per day, uh, gifts to the Dillard Family Ministry, um, all these sorts of things. And he argues that 129940 is just the beginning of Jill's expenses paid by the Duggar family. Jim Bob then writes, after this long breakdown, which again you can find in the book, he says, we would be willing to write a check for $20,000 to settle this once and for all. He said, Jill, when mom and I pass on, you're set to receive one nineteenth of everything we own that is set up in a trust for you kids. If you attack us, probably your inheritance will be lowered significantly. $20,000 is a one-time offer. Take it or leave it. Let me know by Monday night or the amount will be zero. Again, just the tip of the iceberg. Remember the $80,000 that I mentioned that Jim Bob offered to all of the kids? Well, it wasn't just a free charitable gift. It came with some severe stipulations in the terms of a four-page contract that was not with TLC or any other organization. It was with Mad Family Incorporated, which was Jim Bob's production company. This is the details of the contract. So buckle up. The contract wasn't with TLC or any other network. It was with Mad Family Incorporated, a company that mom and pops had previously set up in return for the $80,000. So $80,000. In return for $80,000 for the next seven years, plus an unlimited number of years beyond that, if the company chose, we, Jill and Derek, would have to commit to making not just themselves, but our children and any children yet to be born available to any show that Mad Family Incorporated or participated in. We would, ha- we would be paid for the work as well, but at a rate that we would have to accept without negotiation. We would also have to sign an NDA, which would remain active for the rest of our lives. So not only did he want them to sign basically an unlimited contract, he wanted them to sign a contract on behalf of their children and their unborn children to keep this reality TV machine running at the whim of Jim Bob, which throughout the book, there's many different stories of times that that put immense pressure on them, even times where they were living outside the country and were required to fly back internationally to do photo shoots promoting a show that Jill was making very little to no money on. So anyway, those are a couple of the big takeaways from the book. And again, I applaud Jill for writing so openly. Again, the things I've shared, I've said it a million times, are the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to this story. There's so much more to the Josh story. Those are a couple of the biggest takeaways uh, that stood out to me. Uh, If you have not grabbed a copy of the book, please grab a copy of the book. Uh, There's a link in the show notes of this episode where you can grab a copy. Um, It's available on Amazon, Audible, wherever you get your books. Uh, This is a powerful, brave, harrowing, beautiful, transparent book, and it is extremely detailed, extremely powerful, and uh, it deserves to be read. It deserves your attention. Uh, This is a phenomenal, phenomenal book, and I hope that you pick it up. If you do, or if you just listen to some of the takeaways here, what are your thoughts? Um, I could talk about this for another couple hours. Um, It is so full of information, and um, it is such such a crazy Uh, intense story featuring uh, the Duggar family. So anyway, that's some of my big takeaways from counting the cost. Is there anything you think I missed? Anything that stood out to you that you think uh, needs to be talked about? I know that there's plenty of things like that uh, throughout the book. I probably would agree with whatever you say, Uh, but let me know. Let me know what stood out to you the most uh, on social media in the comments of this video. If you are watching on YouTube or Facebook, thank you, by the way. 
And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you guys in a future episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I will see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.